Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, February 7th, we are studying John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Due to opposition against him, Jesus initially remains in Galilee to the dismay of his brothers, but he eventually goes to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Jackson. Pastor Jackson serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin. Pastor Jackson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thanks for having me on, Pastor Apple. As we get started today, Pastor, let's talk context. What should we know about the immediate context, the first six chapters of John, that'll help us into the start of chapter seven? Yeah, we have sort of the, the beginnings of opposition to Jesus here in the first six chapters of John. So uh, we see this in a, in a couple of different places. So uh, first of all, in John chapter five, uh, Jesus is doing ministry in Judea and in Jerusalem. And there uh, we find these words. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but uh, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And this was coming on the heels of the healing uh, at the pool on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. So Jesus had done this miracle and he's explaining how he's able to do this miracle. And, uh, you know, the, the Jews, which stands in for when John uses the term Jews, most often he is using it to describe like the Jewish religious leaders. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and so he's got this opposition in Jerusalem. And so this is why we find the words here in, uh, John chapter seven, uh, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because Jews were seeking to kill him. But even in Galilee, we find that, you know, he's, he's wandering around in Galilee. And why is he wandering around in Galilee? Previously, his home base had been in Capernaum. Uh, but even in Capernaum, uh, Jesus has this opposition. So just in, in John chapter six, verse 60, um, when many of the disciples heard it, so heard it being the, the statements of, um, you know, I'm the bread of life, which comes down out of heaven. He, he says this in the synagogue at Capernaum. So even when the, many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And so he's having this opposition in, uh, sort of what had previously been his home base in Capernaum, which. Yeah, that was sort of his home base because uh, Simon Peter's uh, family is from there. Simon Peter is from there. And that was sort of a uh, home base for a long time in his Galilean ministry. Um, so he's not based so much in Capernaum. He's kind of wandering around uh, the region of Galilee outside of Capernaum. 
Uh, he's sort of rejected there. Annie's rejected in um, he's rejected as well in Jerusalem or, or has people who are seeking to kill him in Jerusalem. And this really is bringing to light one of the statements that uh, John makes in his very beautiful introduction in John chapter one, uh, where he says he came to his own and his own people uh, did not receive him. That's sort of the the context of this. And uh, this this rejection is a rejection which will ultimately lead to his uh, his rejection, which would lead to lead to the cross. Yeah, it, as you're reminding us of the opposition that Jesus has faced, both in Judea and in Galilee, it, it's somewhat striking that in the middle of all that, in John chapter four, you have Jesus going to Samaria, and and there he's pretty well received. I mean, you know, he has that conversation with a woman at the well, and there's some back and forth. But when she comes to believe who he is, and she begins telling the the rest of the the people of her town about him, they pretty well receive him without opposition. Yeah, and, and we do well to talk a little bit about you know what, it's it's kind of easy to forget. Well, what's Galilee? What's Samaria? Uh, what's uh, what's Judea? So uh, let's just kind of review that a little bit. Um, let's start off with Judea. So Judea is is more or less uh, the region around. Jerusalem. This was kind of home base uh, for the Jewish people, the center of Jewish life. Even if you're in the dispersion, I mean, the Jews were very, uh, we, we might say, uh, they were very good at setting up little colonies all around the world, uh, you know, Africa, Europe. Um, there were still many Jews back in, uh, in what we would now call modern day Iraq, you know, Babylon and uh, Assyria, uh, from their various dispersions there, but the, the center of Jewish life was Jerusalem, uh, because obviously this is where the temple is now. Uh, interestingly enough, this, this never really struck me until I was reading an ancient historian by the name of Josephus. Uh, Josephus talks about, has a, has a very long, uh, book about the, the downfall and the destruction of Jerusalem. And he attributes the uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, in large part to the fact that you know Jerusalem was the one place where every Jew was permitted to go, no matter what. So, you know, the borders were really different back then they are now. You know, national borders, yeah, maybe they were kind of a thing, but things were definitely much more city to city and village to village. And uh, you you really had no right to dwell in, in or even to enter any particular city or village, unlike today. You know, most of these had walls and gates and, and things of this nature. Um, and and so we, we actually see this in the life and ministry of Jesus. Right. Uh, you know, he's kicked out of Nazareth. Like you're, you're not allowed to be here anymore is his hometown. Um but but Jerusalem was like the one place where you could go and, and were supposed to be allowed to go as a Jew, obviously, because the temple is there and, and how can you render the sacrifices and this sort of thing unless you can enter Jerusalem. And Josephus says, well, basically, because this is the case, you know, any rabble rouser was allowed to enter Jerusalem and and to to dwell there. And, and because of this, you know, 
uh, it had become a hotbed of, of rebelliousness against the Romans and so on, and which eventually leads to his downfall when the, when the Romans you know, quashed the rebellion in uh, Jerusalem. So the fact that he's rejected in Jerusalem uh, in a final and total way, uh, you know, in his crucifixion, so much so that, you know, he, he dies outside the city gates of Jerusalem. You know, this was an ultimate rejection of him by the Jews saying that this man is not one of us. And we, we begin to see inklings of that here already in these early chapters of, of John. Now, Galilee is uh, further north uh, between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. We'll talk about Samaria in a minute. Galilee was uh, the region where originally Israelites had lived there, but you know these were like the 10 lost tribes of Israel, as they're often called which they were completely deported and that, that civilization demolished uh, by the Assyrian Empire. Um, so during the, the time of the Maccabees, the, the Hasmonean dynasty, so this was kind of a time of resurgent Jewish power and life and so on, uh, they had actually resettled the region of Galilee. Uh, actually, it appears to be the case that uh, there was sort of like a, a very interesting sort of like forced conversion sort of thing there. Um, and then not only that, uh, but also Jewish settlers came in from Judea to, to settle Galilee. Between Galilee and Judea is Samaria. Uh, Samaria, um, you know, we oftentimes look down most, not on those that are like far from us, but they're near to us, but not quite us. Right. And that's Samaria. So, um, Samaria uh, is is settled by various peoples that the Assyrians had brought in to replace the Israelites that they had deported, and uh, they they recognize Yahweh as God and they accept the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, there, they they actually have this religion because uh, the Old Testament tells us that lions were sort of attacking them. And so the Assyrians sent back some, some Israelite priests to teach them the religion of the land. And uh, this is how they come to acknowledge Yahweh as God. This is how they accept the first five books of the Old Testament. But uh, they, they do not acknowledge Jerusalem to be the uh, proper place of the worship of God. They, they don't accept you know, the rest of the Old Testament canon, which, which many of Judean Jews uh, accepted. Um, and so they're, they're, they're near, but not quite, uh, they are, they're definitely others. And because of this, uh, you know, there's, there's a great deal of, um, antipathy towards the Samaritans by the Jews and from the Samaritans to the Jews. And so, yeah, it's completely surprising, as you said, that, uh, Jesus is fairly well received in Samaria. All right. So with that context, reminder of the geography, what's happening in those three parts of the land, we're going to take a look at John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13 this morning. Here is the text. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. 
Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. That's our text for today. That is John 7, verses 1 to 13. So, Pastor Jackson, you you already mentioned about where Jesus is. He's staying in Galilee for the time being because the opposition in Judea is pretty heated. They're ready to kill him there. We already noted that back in chapter 5. In verse 2, John notes that the Feast of Booths was at hand. Now, we've encountered the Feast of Passover already in John's Gospel, but we haven't encountered the Feast of Booths. Talk about the importance of this context. Yeah, so the Feast of Booths, uh, otherwise known, sometimes you can see it described as the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this was, many people actually believe Josephus, we mentioned him earlier in the in the interview, Josephus says that this was the most popular religious feast uh, of the Jews. Uh, you know, Josephus, uh, you know, that... Uh, that's an interesting point. And, you know, a lot of times as Christians, uh, I, we look and I think rightly and appropriately at, you know, the Feast of Passover as being the, the highest feast as, you know, sort of prefiguring the, uh, the deliverance of us, God's people, from our slavery to uh, sin, death, and the devil. But uh, at least certainly... Popularly, the the Feast of Booze, the the Feast of Tabernacles, was uh, the the most popular feast, and this was a feast which celebrated the remembrance of God's provision for the people in the wilderness. And uh, so, in order to do this, uh, essentially for a, a period of time, the Israelites would uh, would would dwell in these sort of uh, Booths um, or tents, tabernacles. Sometimes, a lot of times, they were made with, uh, you know, like bows of, uh, of of trees and things of this nature. Uh, sort of these rugged outdoor dwellings. And so, if you were sort of a, a country dweller, uh, you would uh, you'd set these booths up out on uh, your property. If you lived in the city, many people who dwelt in cities would do this as well, and they'd set up these booths up on the rooftops of uh, of the cities that they dwelt in, and it was very popular to go and to celebrate this festival down in the uh, district of Jerusalem. And so, you know, around the Feast of Booths, you could see, you know, say you were at a at a high point in Jerusalem, you could look around. Of the countryside and just see it filled with these booths, these tabernacles set up uh, to to celebrate this. And uh, you know, this was a reminder of God's provision for them and God's presence with them. Uh, you know, for God Himself did not forsake the booth or the tabernacle, but He Himself was found to to dwell with them in the in the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
So with that context of the, the Feast of Booths and what they were celebrating and the popularity of it, is there is there a connection between that feast and what Jesus is doing in this text or even going forward into John 7 that we need to, to make some parallels? We drew some parallels between what Jesus is up to and the Passover. What are some of the connections between what's happening with the Feast of Booths and, and what Jesus is doing? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the Feast of Booths is, uh, is important in that— uh, you know, once again, we remember that that God dwelled with the people in the tabernacle, um, in the booths, and uh, Jesus will. He, you know, Jesus says he's not going to go up to the feast. He actually does end up going to the feast. We can we can talk about that. That's not really uh, a contradiction, but uh, but Jesus goes on up to um, Jesus goes on up to Jerusalem, and when he goes up to Jerusalem. Uh, this happens right after this passage. He actually does go up to the temple, and he begins to uh, begins to teach there. And as he's teaching there, um, it becomes evident that that the purposes of the temple uh, have been broken. Right. So he's there, and he's he's teaching the truth, and uh, you know. The, the 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 people are are you know the Jews the these Jewish religious leaders are sort of grumbling against this teaching. So verse fifteen, immediately after our reading it there, it says, "How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied?" Um, and this just shows the vacuousness, the emptiness uh, of what's happening there in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, Jesus says, "Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you mm-hmm. seek to kill me?" So. The, the temple was supposed to be a place of um, not only of sacrifice, not only of prayer, but also of teaching where the, where the word of God would be conferred on, onto the, the people, you know, in successive generations. But here they are sort of grumbling and rejecting, uh, you know, good, authentic teaching of the word of God. And so, you know, it, this, this displays that, yes, this, this has become an empty place and that the purpose of you know, even as the temple had superseded the tabernacle as the place of God's presence among his people, now the temple is being superseded in Christ, that Christ is the, the means by which God tabernacles among us to use, you know, language from, from other epistles and so on, that, that Christ is the presence of God with us and that the time of the temple um, is, oh. is coming to its end. All right, so we're going to keep that context in mind, not only for our text, but in the text going forward here in John chapter 7. Jesus is in Galilee at the beginning of the text. The Feast of Booze is at hand. It's time to celebrate. And so his brothers, they come to, I think, a fairly natural conclusion, at least from their perspective. They urge Jesus at the beginning, hey, let's go to Judea. Let your disciples see the works why would you be working in secret? Talk about the the suggestion from Jesus' brothers and their mindset that's leading to it. Yeah, and and you know this is sort of a natural conclusion based upon what's happening. I mean, Jesus is doing these works. There's this sense that um, you know he's putting himself forward as uh, as a Messiah. So if this is the case, the, the work of the Messiah is something that has to be seen by the whole world. This is something that 
uh, you know, the, the Messiah is going to be this king, you know, to go back to the, the promise to Abraham, you know, the one who would arise, who would be a king and who would, you know, bless all the nations of the world. And so what better place to do this, obviously, than Jerusalem? This is Jerusalem is this center of, of Jewish life. And it's, it's a city that really is on the world stage. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear people talking about, oh, Jerusalem was kind of this backwater place. No, not really. I mean, the, the temple in Jerusalem is one of the wonders of the world. Uh, you know, the Jews had a, had a fairly important place in, uh, in Roman civilization, really, uh, for, for multiple reasons. I mean, um, you know, the, the Herodian Kings, you know, these are, are strong, strong allies of Caesar. And, you know, as we said, the, the Jews had set up many colonies around the world and were, were very accomplished merchants and, uh, and so on. And so, yeah, Jerusalem's on the, not just the center stage for Jewish life, but it's, it's the world stage as well. And, and what better time and what better place to make yourself known than at the Feast of Booze, which was this extremely popular festival among the Jews. And, uh, but, but ultimately this is a, this is a confusion, right? Um, this is a confusion in multiple ways. First of all, they're confused about the nature of Jesus's messiahship. Uh, and second of all, they're confused and, you know, sort of foolishly confused because they ought to know better based on some of the things that have already happened in John. Uh, but they're also confused about how Jesus's signs of divinity will be received. Hmm. What, with, with the brothers of Jesus, it, it's striking to me that, that here they're, they're engaging with him in a, I don't know, a, a positive sort of way. John does tell us, you know, that, that they don't believe him at this point. Right. But you know, the way that the way that you meet the brothers in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is they they think he's crazy. They're trying to get him out of the spotlight. It seems here they're urging him into the spotlight. And I, I you know I know those you know here we're reading John and we're, we're not taking a look at the synoptics, but just that I don't know that they almost seem to at least here there's a a desire to get him out there. Like they they could see something positive coming from him. Although as you said, it's a confused thing that they're they're wanting. Whereas in the the synoptic gospels, the the primary picture is, hey, you know, you're you're embarrassing us, Jesus. Get out of the the limelight. Here they want him out there. It's just a it's an interesting, uh, it's a different picture, I think, than than what I'm used to seeing Jesus brothers in the gospels. Yeah, and I agree, and it's it's a little bit ambiguous, right? So I mean, they they don't believe in him, right. um, and what we we should probably talk about that a little bit more, but it doesn't seem to be at least the way John portrays it, it doesn't seem to be quite as antagonistic as the synoptics. And and I would basically say that, you know, this is a deliberate choice by John, right? I mean, so by the time John is writing, the other three gospels are, uh, I believe at least, are, are in circulation. And so, you know, John writes to not to contradict but rather instead to supplement and enrich what has already been received yeah. uh, through the other Gospels. And so, you know, uh, human relationships are complex. Uh, right. And right. and Jesus, and, 
you know, living in a rural place, uh, as I do, you know, human relationships are, are far more complex in rural places, at yeah. least has been my experience than they are in, in urban places. Cause you, you can't get away from each other. <laughs> so you have <laughs> to right. deal with each other. So <laughs> someone can be your rival and your friend and your family member and, uh, all at the same time. Right. And so, uh, I would look at this simply as the synoptics just bringing out different aspects of this relationship right. of the brothers with Christ than contradictions with, uh, you know, John and, and Mark and Matthew Mark. And- sure. Sure. Yeah. Not, not to, to say there's a contradiction, but it's, it's just interesting to see how the, the picture you get a fuller picture of it when you, when you put it all together. And I, I appreciate the way you, you said that about the, the complexity of relationships in rural areas and among brothers too, you know, within right. the, the same family, it's it's not hard at all to imagine a group of brothers at one point saying to the to the to Jesus, "Hey, you know, just get out of here. You're nuts." Right. And then at another time, that same group of people saying, "Hey, here's an opportunity for you to actually make something of yourself." Right. right? And those those two things don't they don't contradict each other. You're right. Yeah. It, it does reveal the complexity. And, and perhaps you know one reason why John portrays the brothers in this way is that you know a big question that John has, and then he's trying to answer. Uh, through this is, uh, you know, who is Jesus, right? Uh, who is Jesus? And um, ultimately, interestingly enough, probably the best answer for who is Jesus uh, comes towards the the end uh, of of John, where uh, you know Jesus says. Uh, echoing this passage from John seven, he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my, that's what belief is, right? To look at Jesus as Lord, uh, as God. And there are many other answers given for who Jesus is right throughout, throughout John, but it's, it's really not until the cross and, and the resurrection um, and these resurrection appearances of Jesus in which the cross is not forgotten, right? He still has these wounds in his hands and his side that, that Thomas beholds and, and believes and gives this good confession of who Jesus is. But, mm. but until that point, we're left with all these unsatisfactory understandings of who Jesus is. So one might be yeah. like his brothers. So like this is well, more, let's yeah, yeah uh, you're you're right, Pastor Jackson, and that I think that's that's going to be a good stopping point point for us to take our sure. break to to have that question in our minds: Who is Jesus? What are some of the answers that are out there about Jesus at this point? We'll keep looking that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking John Seven with Pastor Christopher Jackson. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? 
Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 7th. We're studying John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Christopher Jackson. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin. Pastor Jackson, prior to the break, we were talking about this question that John would have us ask, who is Jesus? And you're saying that we, we don't really understand that answer correctly and see it and believe it until we see Jesus crucified and risen. But in the meantime, in John, and particularly in John chapter 7, we have some various answers that are out there. So we've kind of talked about the brothers and what their answer is. What what do we see in this text about how people are trying to answer the question, who is Jesus at this point? Yeah, so so the brothers look at Jesus and they see um, an individual who uh, has these signs of messiahship, uh, they see this messiahship in sort of a, a worldly way, uh, right? Whereas there are other answers given to who Jesus is. So, you know, this is jumping ahead uh, in the passage, but, uh, you know, Jesus has gone up to the feast, you know, so Jesus had said that he's not going to go up to the feast. Um and uh, he ends up going up anyways after his brothers have already gone up. E- essentially, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not going to go up for the purposes that that you desire me to go up, but it, you know, I'm not going to go up on your terms. I'm going to go up on uh, my terms. And uh, he goes up, and uh, you know, so what does he do? He begins to um, you know teach, but people are looking for him, so his his reputation. Uh, is is well known at this point, and you know. So the Jews, uh, again, which is the term that he uses for these religious leaders, uh, John uses. They're asking, "Where is he?" And part of the multitude of people are saying, "You know, he's a good man, right?" Uh, so, in other words, you know, he's. He's, he's someone that is, is doing good things. You know, we should maybe listen to his teaching and, you know, receive the blessings that God is giving through him. Uh, but this is a far cry from the confession of, of Thomas, right? Uh, that he's not just mere man, but he's also Lord and God. And then there's another segment of the multitude which say, no, he is leading the people astray. So, you know, they see him as a threat. Uh, You know, interestingly enough, these are ones who take his teaching seriously and take his work seriously. They they see it for, uh, you know, the the very powerful thing that it is. You know, he is a good man is almost like... uh, you know, sort of a, an understatement as to who he really is, right? He is leading people astray, on the other hand, understands that there's something powerful happening here, but they see what this powerful thing happening as a, as a threat uh, for whatever reason, whether this is, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's leading people astray from, from Roman rule, and that's a threat to our well-being because what's going to happen if, 
you know, that happens or he's leading astray people astray with regards to his, uh, his teaching or, or perhaps both. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, I, I believe that we have, you know, these are perceptions of Jesus, which we still encounter today. And, mm-hmm. you know, we still have people who like the brothers of Jesus uh, you know, want to make Jesus into some sort of worldly, uh, worldly Messiah. And, and probably the way that we would see this today is that, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, is oftentimes put forward as like this, uh, guru who's going to, uh, to help us, you know, have lots of zeros in our bank account on the on the right side of the other numbers not on the left side uh he's gonna let us have a lot of zeros in our bank account uh gleaming white teeth wonderful relationships and so on now i I certainly do believe that following christ can can lead to better well-being in this world but uh you know these are 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 certainly not promises uh that we receive uh from christ uh you know others you know, would see Jesus, yeah, like as this good man, right? You know, oh, he was, uh, you know, he's this uh, individual that, you know, you can read about and, you know, I don't know, I would sort of put this on the level of, uh, you know, precious moments to Christianity, you know, kind of this this feel-good kind of uh, Christianity, which doesn't want to wrestle with uh how Jesus confronts us in our evil and, and of this world. And, you know, this mm-hmm. Jesus confronting the evil of this world, um, in his deeds and, and, uh, in his teaching is at the center here. You know, Jesus, uh, uh, calls out the brothers for not acknowledging the fact that, uh, you know, Jesus is confronting the evil of this world. And then as well, you know, there are, and this is probably an ascendant view of Jesus, uh, much more, uh, than it has been in, you know, last, you know, previous decades. But, you know, there are probably many more people these days uh, who would say that he is leading people astray, you know, to bear the name of Christ as Christian these days uh, is, is, is in many circles, no longer seen as uh, a virtue, but rather as, as a vice and uh, to follow Jesus and his words is seen um, accurately for the threat that it is against the ways that that people desire to live and against the order of this world and and you know the the deceptions of this world and so you know to those who are you know so beholden to to the evil of this world and to their sin um, and do not wish to receive the, the saving work of Jesus. Yeah. Jesus is this threat. Jesus is, uh, leading people astray. They would. I think you're right to, to see that that last one is becoming more common in our day that, that Jesus is starting. We are, people are seeing him as a threat, you know, and, and rather than sort of, which is an interesting shift as you're talking about the, you know, Jesus as a, just a good man, but not God. It's been commonplace, you know, to to pull a quote from Jesus that supports whatever position you already believe, because you kind of want Jesus to be on your side. Usually, that's that's been a little more common, I think. But I think you're right to see that shift. That now there's a little more recognition. Well, if I can't find the quote from Jesus that I want, 
or I find the quote, you know, that's actually in opposition to what I want from Jesus, then to to treat him more like an enemy again, as as we see in this text, that is becoming a bit more common, I think, in our world. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, so we're still seeing those same reactions to Jesus, as well as of course the true reaction, the the true confession of Thomas, that is still very much alive in the church today. And and God grant that we would cling to that true confession of who Jesus is. Now we we've not heard that quite in its fullest yet in John's gospel, although Nathaniel back in chapter one gave us some some pretty good confession as well. Here there's that confusion as Jesus is speaking with his brothers. Let's start talking about what he says to his brothers in answer in verses 6 through 8. He starts talking about, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. What's he talking about with, with his own time and then the time of his brothers? Yeah. Uh, you know, time is, uh, we think of time and we think of seconds and we think of minutes, right? Um, so in the ancient world, there was probably, there was a much more nuanced understanding of, of time, right? So, uh, there's, there's time in the way that we understand it. And, 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 you know, maybe like the Greek word that we would, uh, use for that is chronos, you know? So this is like, you know, the, the seconds ticking by and, and things of this nature, um, then there's, there's Kairos. So Kairos is, uh, you know, time as in like, uh, we might say ages or, uh, you know, I don't know, another word for this would be like eons or, or something of this nature. So, you know, now is for the worldly, the, the world is living in uh, worldly time. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the world, um, is, uh, you know, the, the brothers are living in this time, uh, because they are of the world and, you know, because they're of the world, you know, the world cannot, cannot hate them. Um, whereas Jesus as God really comes from uh, a different time. And, you know, he comes from, uh, you know, whereas this world is, is passing away and every second th- this world had a beginning and an end and it, it will have an end, right? The, the seconds of this world and its age of evil and consumption with evil, um, every second is uh, a second nearer to its destruction, to its, its dissolution. Jesus comes from eternity, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, another statement that eventually will, uh, cause, uh, a great deal of consternation, uh, with people in, in the gospel of John is that, uh, you know, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, you know, Jesus comes from eternity. He is eternal because he is God. and you know, this points forward to the promise that, that we have in the gospel as well, is that, that Jesus, when he returns in power and in might and in glory is going to, uh, bring the, the time of this world to its end. And in that day, you know, he will join heaven to earth and, and the, the life of the world to come, as we say, it uh, will dawn, 
uh, dawn upon us. That'll be a completely different age than the age in which we dwell now. Um, and, and so, and that's an age that we already participate in with, with belief. Uh, the brothers do not yet believe, and so therefore they are not yet of that eternal world which is to come. The the world from which, you know, the and world's probably not the best way to say it, but uh, you know, the 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 eternal the eternity from which Jesus comes. How does how does this talk of Jesus' time, his age, and the time of the the brothers? How does that relate to his his coming death and resurrection? I mean, we I think it was his conversation with his mother at the wedding at Cana, mm-hmm. where he used the language of his hour is not yet here. Here it's his his time or his age. How does that relate to his his death and resurrection that is coming? Yeah, so uh, you know his uh, death and his resurrection are. Uh, essentially when the the time to come um, enters into the now. Uh, So this is when, you know, the final day um, enters into our day. And so, uh, you know, yes, his time uh, is, is the resurrection and, or is, is, is the cross and the resurrection. And that's something that, um, you know, uh, as we as we look at this discussion of time in John, um, you know, that is when his time will come, and that's when that is when it is appropriate then for him to, as we said, enter this world stage, right? Mm. Not as this Messiah through power, but rather this Messiah through weakness. This this Messiah who turns over the order of this world. Who exercises his messiahship not through, you know, these demonstrations of might, but rather through his through his death and his then eventually his resurrection as well. Mm. So, so Jesus is pointing the his brothers at this point forward to that time that will come, but it's not yet here. His time for his death and his resurrection, and then after after he says this, he remains in Galilee, but then in verse ten he actually goes to get to to Judea not publicly but in private. You mentioned earlier it's not a contradiction. It, it wasn't that Jesus was was lying to his brothers. What what's going on? What is the why does he say he's not going to go but then he does go? Yeah. So Jesus says uh yeah, um you go on up to the feast. You know, my time is not yet fully come and yeah, he's you know, once again, he's using uh you know, this, this term of kairos of, you know, age or, or something of this nature or the fullness of time. Um, but yet he does still go up. Um, but then John has this note, not publicly, but in private. So the, the brothers desired for him to go up in this grand public way to, uh, you know, do his deeds, uh, you know, in, uh, in this public way. Uh, Jesus instead uh, wants to go up uh, privately because, yeah, as we said, the time has not yet come. And a big part of this is because, you know, the brothers are confused about several things. First of all, they're confused about the nature of his messiahship. And they're also confused about the way that his deeds will be received, right? So they think that, you know, um, you know, perhaps if Jesus goes and does these works on the world stage that, you know, people will believe in him, but it, it, 
they should already actually know uh, because of the healing at the at the pool um, that when Jesus does his acts of power, these will actually, in fact, <laughs> bring about his uh, uh, bring about the cross and his rejection. And when the time has come, eventually at the uh, at the Passover, uh, when when the time has come for him to to make himself known, and he does. Uh, these two miracles, so the miracle of the healing of the man born blind, and as well the raising of Lazarus, these two miracles are like the final straw where the the Jewish authorities have said, you know, it's it's time. It's it's time to to get rid of this guy. And and these miracles lead not to his reception, but eventually lead instead to people shouting, you know, crucify him. They lead to his uh, lead to his rejection because, uh, you know, these are an indication that, you know, as, as Jesus said, he is not of this world. Hmm. Is, is there something to that, that second misunderstanding of the brothers that we see still today? I mean, you talked about the, they they've got this confusion based on the nature of his messiahship. They don't understand that rightly, but the, their confusion over the way Jesus works will be received. They think these works of power will earn him popularity and glory, and, and they've got that wrong. Is that, is that confusion still evident today that, that we would think of, of Jesus' works in the, in the wrong way or have a confusion about the way his works would be received? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a good observation. Um, I feel like in the church so often there's this temptation that, you know, if only we can get our programming exactly right. And don't get me wrong, I, you know, having good solid programming, uh, you know, for the sake of catechesis, for the sake of Christian charity and so on is, is important. But there's this, this idea that if only we can get the programming just right, if only we can uh, make our, our worship, uh, you know, upbeat and inspirational enough. Um, if only, you know, we can exercise political power in the right ways. Well, then, then the church will come into this golden age and, and so on. There's, there's certainly this, uh, deception still today. That if, if we do these things and exercise this kind of power of the world will uh, look at us and they will be drawn to the church and, and drawn to Christ. And um, this isn't to say that we shouldn't seek to excel and, and shouldn't seek to demonstrate, um, you know, to, to have good worship and so on. But ultimately, the church lives and dies by its confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and God, mm. uh, confession which which we will only truly be able to speak if we are people of the cross and resurrection. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, Jesus is, is already pointing his brothers toward his cross and resurrection <laughs> as the, the time yeah. that needs to fully come. And so as we consider this for ourselves today, that need to, to stay true to that confession of of the cross and resurrection. I mean, we've been been hearing from from First Corinthians in the in the three year lectionary for the epistle during the the Epiphany season, and we've been talking. We've seen this that Paul will say the word of the cross that is the power of God, though it looks like weakness. Mm -hmm. 
that that's the we still need to hear that at the church today to cling to that that true word of the cross as our confession rather than than the you know, the the thought that all of this power and glory that that's somehow going to get us what we want it is the cross that that's truly the the time of Jesus that's where the the power actually is yeah and paul yeah you know, I, I was i was thinking of this as i was talking about it, so i'm glad you brought that out i mean paul appeals to this with the corinthians right that you know i i didn't come to you with um you know fine words and powerful speech but uh instead you know i spoke in uh you know i i i spoke weekly right i mean there was this kind of uh this grumbling against Paul among the Corinthian congregation. Oh, this guy who speaks so powerfully in his letters instead is the stutterer when he shows up. He says, you know, look, um, you know, his his power shows forth in in my weakness. And and once again, it's not to say that communicating well is is wrong. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't seek to communicate well. Uh, but, but ultimately our reliance must be upon the word of God and our reliance must be upon, especially the word of the cross and resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where true faith can actually only come. And again, we're here in John seven. So this, this confusion, we should expect to see it, but as you said, moving forward into John's gospel, especially after the resurrection, that's where Thomas exclaims, my Lord and my God. And then, you know, for us, blessed are those who have not mm. seen and yet have believed that same thing. Right. There's a, I mean, it seems like there's a, that there, we're progressing there. We're getting there, even though we're not there. And I think you you mentioned this toward the, I can't remember exactly when, but you mentioned this earlier. There's a, an evidence of a progression here that, that Jesus is, you know, with this idea of the Feast of the Booths, the tabernacle, the temple, Jesus is, we're seeing him as now, here's where God dwells. Mm -hmm. uh, talk, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, we we find that uh, you know Jesus has come to fulfill uh, fulfill the Old Testament. You know, in, in Hebrews it says that uh, you know in many and various ways the Lord has spoken to us in the prophets, but now He has spoken to us in His Son, and. And so Jesus has come um, to uh, to supersede uh, all of the things of uh, the Old Testament, and and interestingly enough, now, now when I say supersede, this means that he fulfills them in such a way that um, you know he is the fullness of them, and therefore the purpose of these things of the Old Testament. Have gone astray, and and actually, interesting enough, as we look at this passage, where it says, "No, he is leading the people astray." Um, this is a uh, this is actually in in many ways uh, an appropriate reaction to what Jesus is doing and who he is and what he is about. Because if you're if you treasure the things of the old testament in such a way that they become the ultimate good then then certainly jesus who has come to supersede them will be a threat 
right? Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say that these things of the Old Testament are bad. And when I th- say the things of the Old Testament, I mean things like, you know, the Mosaic law, um, aspects of it, such as, you know, not the moral law, but, but rather, you know, things such as the ceremonies, which are to be given things such as the, the sacrifices, the various dressing customs, the eating customs, and, um, you know, these various things, um, you know, even as Jesus has come to supersede the temple, he's come to supersede all of that as well. And their purpose has been fulfilled um, in him. And so this perspective that he's a threat to that is, is, is accurate. And, um, you know, this would probably be a good time to talk about this, this use of the term Jews that, uh, that John uses here. So John uses this. Yeah. And Pastor Jackson, just by way of warning, and I always, there's never enough time on Sharp. We've got about two minutes here. So, so give us, give us some, give us that information, help us to wrap things up as well. Sure. So, uh, by the time John is writing this, I believe that, you know, um, later than most of the rest of the new Testament, um, you know, there's, there's come to be a solid division between the early Christian church and Judaism. And so when, when John refers to the Jews, you know, these are sort of the, the tip of the spear of, uh, the rejection of Jesus by, by those who would call themselves Jews. And a big part of that rejection is because yes, he did supplant and supersede uh you know these things of the old uh testament um all this is to say is that uh jesus is the fullness of god's revelation uh jesus uh is uh, to use the language of uh the the first chapter of john jesus unlike the prophets of old didn't just speak god's word jesus is god's word he is where you can find the fullness of God, and he is to be found nowhere else uh, besides in Christ. And so uh, to understand Jesus correctly is to understand God correctly. To, to behold him in his cross and his resurrection and to have faith in him is to have a relationship not only with Christ, but also is to have a relationship with the Father and a relationship which can come only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, so today as we see Jesus and uh, his, his rejection in Judea, his rejection even in Galilee, uh, we would do well to receive him and we receive him by faith as Lord and God and as our Savior from sin, death, and the devil. Pastor Christopher Jackson is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Algoma, Wisconsin, and St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Forestville, Wisconsin, helping us today to study John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Jackson, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me on. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.